Think of the biggest, richest, and most valuable company in the entire world right now. You could consider any number of metrics, how much money they're earning, how much they're worth in the stock market, how much their founders are raking in. But right now, you're probably thinking of a company like Apple pumping out 350 iPhones a minute from the bowels of its factories. To this big, big earnings report after the bell today. I know you're looking at some research. There's some estimates out there that Apple's added about 100 million iPhone users over the past 18 months. What kind of what kind of sense does that give you about what we're going to hear after the bell? Or are you thinking of something like Amazon, which can ship out billions of packages in a year? Jeff Bezos has become the first human being on the planet to be worth $200 billion. Yes, you heard that right, $200 billion. It was marked at 1.50 p.m. Eastern Time on August 26th after Amazon stock went up 2%. This not only maintains his spot as the world's richest person, but it also makes him... Now imagine any of these two companies, the iPhone seller or the online retailer, suddenly fielding an army into battle and taking over an entire province or an entire country. Think of it, Apple, the company, conquering Manila. Amazon, the company, ruling over the entire Philippines. That's exactly what the British East India Company did to much of India back in the 1700s. The British East India Company was among the first joint stock corporations. That is, it was one of the first companies to be owned entirely by its shareholders. Its royal charter, drawn up by Queen Elizabeth I, gave the company the right to wage war if it was necessary. 150 years after its founding, it exercised that right excessively. In Palashi, or as the British called it, Plassey, the private army of the East India Company faced off against the assembled troops of the Nawab of Bengal. The British numbered 3,000, the majority of whom were sepoys or Indian mercenaries being paid by the East India Company, while the Bengalis were 50,000 soldiers strong. On paper, it looked like it was going to be a lopsided fight. But luck, the weather, and traitorous generals were all on the company's side. As author William Dalrymple wrote in The Guardian, The Battle of Plassey was a victory that owed more to treachery, forged contracts, bankers, and bribes than to military prowess. The East India Company lost only 22 men that day. At the head of its army was Robert Clive, the clerk turned general who'd get the grandiose name Clive of India. After Plassey, Clive wrenched open the great Bengal treasury, loaded its contents into 100 boats, and overnight became one of the richest men in the world. That all happened in 1757. Five years later, the East India Company was consolidating its corporate control over the entirety of Bengal. But the board of directors was also considering a business case for a new venture a little farther afield in a city in the Pacific called Manila. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we examine how and why the Philippines ended up on the radar of one of the most rapacious corporations on Earth. This is Season 4, Episode 8, 
British East India Company, Manila Branch. At the start of this episode, we quoted the historian William Dalrymple. He once wrote an entire book on the British East India Company. In the book, he minces no words. He calls Clive of India an unstable sociopath. Now, it turns out that one of the ancestors of William Dalrymple was an East India Company employee named Alexander Dalrymple who, in 1761, arrived at the court of the Sultan of Sulu and began talks for the British to open up a trading post in the area. Over the next three years, Dalrymple and the royal court ended up signing four very ornate treaties. The Sultan's copies of the treaties have been praised for their fascinating calligraphy as well as the very clever way the seals of the Sulu nobles were stamped across the documents. The agreements also set the stage for an eventual British outpost in the island of Balambangan, which is presently part of Malaysia. But that trading office was still a decade out. In between rounds at the negotiation table, Dalrymple poked about the royal island of Holo and figured that this would be a good place to plant clove and nutmeg. Perhaps with the right plantations, spices grown in Mindanao could compete with a Dutch chokehold over the spice trade. The East India Company's interest in the Philippines ticked up even higher. In fairness, invading Manila wasn't the East India Company's idea. The original ringleaders of the invasion plan were the wig-wearing opportunists of the British Admiralty. See, Britain had been fighting a global war against the French. It was a true world war in a time when the term hadn't even been invented yet. The Seven Years' War was fought with tomahawks and flintlocks across the American frontiers, with muskets and sabers in Silesia, with booming ship cannons just off the coast of France. Spain was reluctantly drawn into the war via a late-stage alliance with France, which, at that point in the conflict, was already gasping and heaving against the ropes. Britain declared war against Spain on January 4, 1762. The Admiralty eagerly pounced on this chance to execute the plan they'd been cooking up for the past month. The lords and nobles realized that the key to taking over the Philippines was the East India Company, after all, they already had the soldiers, they already had the guns, they already had the ships, and they could all sail to Manila's doorstep in a little under two months. The company's private army had conquered Bengal, conquering a little seaside city watched over by unseasoned and undercooked sentries would probably be a walk in the park. Hi, this is Leo, creator of the Colonial Department. Sorry to interrupt your listening, I just want to say that after this episode, I'll be taking a three-week-long mid-season break. But feel free to drop me a line at the Colonial Depth. that's T-H-E-C-O-L-O-N-I-A-L-D-E-P-T at gmail.com. Or just search for The Colonial Department on Instagram. I'd especially love to get your ideas on future episodes or know what you think about the ones you listen to. Okay, see you in three weeks. Season 4 will return in June 2023. Now, let's get back to some more Philippine history. Not everyone in the East India Company's board of directors was on board with the plan. 
The chairman of the board was a portly kingmaker named Lawrence Sullivan, who had the ear of the most influential politicians in the British Empire. He, along with other officers of the company, signed a carefully worded letter that protested against the Manila venture. Sending crack troops to conquer Manila, the letter said, might mean that their most valuable settlements in India would be left undefended. If their soldiers were distracted in Manila, perhaps the French or even the Dutch would make a move on their possessions in the subcontinent. Besides, the letter also argued, taking Manila would be very, very expensive. Manila being an object of infinite importance to the Spanish nation, the company can hardly flatter themselves with holding it when peace takes place, said the company officers self-deprecatingly. Great sums must certainly be extended on the works and fortifications and in garrison charges. What the company officers didn't tell the government, however, was that they didn't need to conquer Manila to benefit from it economically. They already had a little side trade going on with the Philippines, and that trade had been going on for almost a century. East India Company officers called this secretive side venture with a very gentlemanly name, the country trade. To protect the monopoly of the galleon trade, Spain locked Manila out from trading with European powers. So, starting around 1670, the East India Company had to employ some off-the-book workarounds. Here's how the country trade with Manila worked. If you were a retired East India Company man looking to make a quick buck on the side, you'd charter a so-called country ship. It was important that these ships, on paper, weren't owned by Englishmen. Writes historian Serafin Kiason. As free access to Manila was allowed only to traders of Asian origins, English-owned goods were freighted on vessels owned by Armenians, Muslims, Hindus, and Parsis. Portuguese settlers also ran a considerable number of these country ships. The country ships were loaded with India-made textiles like cotton or calico, as well as iron, pearls, and diamonds. To scrub any trace of Englishness that would raise Spanish suspicions, the ships took on India-influenced names like Annapurna or Tanjore or Trivitor, or were christened with religious monikers like St. David or St. Paul or Nuj Senora de Boa Vista. Suitably renamed, they sailed from Madras in February or March, or at the latest, June or July, riding eastwards upon the prevailing winds. Upon arrival in the Philippines, they greased the palms of some Spanish officials, then did their business. They returned to Madras, laden with tobacco, sulfur, sugar, leather, and copper, as well as beautiful plates, chests, and jewelry designed by Chinese craftsmen in Manila. But the most valuable import from Manila was silver, mined straight from the Americas and delivered to the Philippines via the galleon trade. The East India Company officials could expect a reliable income from the country trade with Manila. One English trader even made a handsome 49% profit off his investment in an Armenian-owned country ship. But a messy war could throw a galleon-sized stopper in this lucrative, secretive business. 
But protesting the plan was no good, no less than King George III was endorsing the Manila invasion. But when British Admiralty officers began assembling the troops in Madras, they were offered only the barest and most reluctant cooperation from the East India Company. In London, the company promised 2,000 sepoys. In Madras, however, it only loaned the expedition the services of 600 sepoys. In addition, the firm also offloaded onto the invasion force two companies of French deserters, whom no one was sure could actually be trusted. Brigadier General William Draper, the leader of the ground forces, would later insult the East India Company reinforcements as a feeble supply of men. This feeble supply of men, however, would end up taking over Manila in just 12 days. The Spanish, along with some native soldiers, mounted a cursory resistance, but they could not stop the British batteries from puncturing the intramuros walls. And neither could they stop the wholesale looting and raping and pillaging that went on when the foreign invaders poured in. But when the party was done and the treasures had been stripped bare, the British found that they still had to rule the colony. Stepping up to the plate as the first and only British Governor General of the Philippines was an East India Company employee named Dawson Drake. By all accounts, he did a piss-poor job. He could not expand British rule beyond Manila and Cavite. He was unable to win the popular support of the natives. He could not raise a profit. And worse, he pissed off the military leaders of the British forces, one of whom called him a fool and an idiot. After two painful years, the British returned Manila to the Spanish. Dawson Drake was later investigated in Madras for extortion, corruption, mismanagement, and abuse of power during his term as Governor-General. The East India Company's Manila venture turned out to be a bust. But no matter. Just one year after the British abandonment of Manila, the Mughal emperor turned over to Robert Clive the right to collect all taxes in the wealthiest region in India. The East India Company was no longer just a multinational trading firm. It was an empire all to itself. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. If you want to know more about the British East India Company's looting of Manila, tune into Season 1, Episode 12 of this podcast. My references include Shirley Fisher's 2003 book on the British occupation of Manila, Serafin Kiason's article on the country trade between Madras and Manila, William Dalrymple's 2015 article on the East India Company for The Guardian, and articles by Christy Patricia Flannery and Megan C. Thomas on British forces in the Seven Years' War. Audio of Apple Revenues from CNBC Television. Audio of Jeff Bezos is from Forbes. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Liu Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department. <laughs>